Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great pleasure to greet all of you in our wonderful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, I hope that all of you have already seen our exhibition, our special exhibition on World War II in New York City, which has more than 300 art pieces of art, artifacts, um, documents, and some incredible letters, and even a piece of the cyclotron from the Manhattan Project in it. If you haven't seen the exhibition, I do hope that you will return during regular museum hours to see it. Uh, I also want to make sure that all of you are aware that we inaugurated a new film series, the Bernard and Irene Schwartz film series. It's Friday night, pay as you wish. And uh, we do hope that you will join us for these wonderful films um, and the wonderful writers and speakers and historians who, who talk about them. I also want to encourage anyone here who is not yet a member to join. As you know, members play an invaluable role in supporting virtually every aspect of the wonderful work that we do. Tonight's program, The Oath, The Obama White House, and The Supreme Court is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which of course is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their wonderful support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine writers and historians to the New York Historical Society. I'd also like to recognize some uh, extra special people in the audience this evening. Our very own trustees, Susan Danilo, Lon Jacobs, Richard Reese, and did I miss anyone? Okay, and all of our wonderful Chairman's Council members, and I would like to thank you especially for the great work that you do on behalf of the New York Historical Society. Thank you so very much. Uh, tonight's program will last about an hour. It will include a question and answer session. We'll invite you to approach two microphones in the aisle to uh, right in front of me on my left and the aisle on my right. Um, we ask you to approach the microphones because uh, this way you uh, will be heard. You're quite, I see Judy Berkowitz coming in, so I'm going to send her to the... Come on, Judy. Another one of our great trustees. We've got seats up front. Um, We'll, uh, we ask you to approach the microphones in the aisle because that way our speakers can hear the question and we do record so uh, everyone can hear the question, um, whether remotely or in the audience this evening. Uh, I also want to say that following the program, I hope you'll join us for a book signing with Mr. Tubin. Uh, his book will be available for purchase in our museum store. So now, we are very, very pleased indeed to welcome Jeffrey Tubin back to the New York Historical Society. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he writes about legal affairs, and he is the author of the new book, The Oath. His previous book, The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court, was a bestseller, and received the J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize for nonfiction, and also the Silver Gavel Award of the American Bar Association. He is also the senior legal analyst at CNN, which he joined after seven years with ABC News, where he earned an Emmy Award. Our model, moderator this evening is Samuel Zakharoff, who is the Bonnie and Richard Reese Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University School of Law. 
He's one of the pioneers in the law of the political process and one of the co-authors of the seminal Law of Democracy casebook. He began his teaching career at the University of Texas in 1989 before moving to Columbia Law School and then NYU in 2005. Uh, Professor Zakharoff is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he has published over 100 articles, books, and other academic works. So now, before I ask the speakers to come up to the stage, I just want to make sure that everyone has switched off their cell phones and anything else that might make noise. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Thank you. There's a balcony. It's so cool. And they have people. Uh, well, uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for all for coming. Uh, this is a great pleasure for me to uh, ask Jeff some questions about uh, his latest book on the Supreme Court. And uh, to get a sense of um, the difficult line that he tries to walk in these books. It's uh, on the one hand, it's a little bit of muckraking. It's a little bit of inside gossip. It's, uh, there's not a lot of sex, but he's working on that. Um, but at the same time, there's a deep respect for the power of the institution, the seriousness of the issues. And so the book is about the Roberts Court. And so I thought, Jeff, I'd ask you first to start at the back end. And the epilogue of your book is called The Roberts Court. And the implication is that it doesn't just become the Roberts Court, that somehow it has to be made into that. The Chief Justice, it's not just a period of time. It's not, we don't call it the Warren Court because it began in 1954 and ended uh, 14 years later. We, we have some sense of the mark. And, you, you, and let me give you a quote from your book at, near the end. Roberts had dual goals for his tenure as Chief Justice, to push his own ideological agenda, but also to preserve the court's place as a respected final arbiter of the nation's disputes. How does he do that? How does the Chief Justice make the court his court? That's a terrific question, which I will not answer immediately. Um, first of all, I just want to say hello, everyone. Um, and it's so great to be here. This is such a fantastic room. I, I, you know, I spoke in the sort of old days here at the Historical Society where it was very much a historical society. <laughs> um, but it's so sort of new and beautiful and, and I am such a fan. I am a member. You should all be members of the Historical Society. Uh, I took a class while I was writing it. Um, I've seen all the exhibits here. I mean, this is just a, a fantastic place, a great resource. Um, for New York, and it is a thrill to be here. Now, to get to your question. Um, thank you for that ovation, one person. Um, That's so for how the fundraising. That's right. How does Roberts make it the Roberts Court? Well, I, I think um, the, the Roberts, John Roberts was appointed to do something at the Supreme Court. I mean, he is a committed political conservative. He is going to advance that agenda through the law in every way that he can, consistent with, I think, a um, understanding of where the Supreme Court is as an institution in American life. The court generally does not lead. It, it follows. 
But it, and I think the best justices recognize that the law can, um, th there is only so much the court can do um, to, to push the ideology of the, uh, of, of the individual justices without getting out of whack in terms, uh, w in terms that might damage the institution. And, and I think, I mean, we'll get to this, I think you know, his, his role in the healthcare case is the paradigmatic example of his different role as a chief justice versus being an associate justice on the court. Right, but he came on the court as the chief justice, and there's a hint in your book that it wasn't the Roberts court for a period of time. So you pass lightly over, to give just one example, in 2007, uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion in a case involving school desegregation, Parents United, that had a sort of churlish quality to it, a, a kind of clever uh, gamesmanship with Brown stands, Brown versus Board of Education stands for equality, therefore there can be no preferential or integrative treatment. There was a, there was a sort of a debater's point quality to it. It didn't, it was not becoming of a chief justice. And the implication in the book is that he grew into that role in a relatively short period of time. Do you have, can you well, tell I, us I, you know, when, I, I, how? Well, I, I think, you know, let's just start with the basics. You know, John Roberts is the smartest person on a court of very smart people. I mean, the, the, this is an enormous intellect who is, just by the by, I think, the best writer to be on that court in many years, uh, maybe going back as far as Robert Jackson, who was, I think, the best writer ever to, ever to serve on the court. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think it is easy to know as a justice what the proper ideological position it is to take in any given case. And most of the justices, that's sort of what they do. That's the end of their responsibilities as justices, even as they see it. Roberts is different, and, and, and I think, um, the, the, he could have reached the same result. I mean, just to give you a little background on, on this case, the Parents Involved case. Um, this was a case, there were two cases from Seattle and Louisville where um, both school, school committees had set up systems that allowed for integration of the schools, racial integration of the schools. And it was a very sort of modest system. I mean, mo mostly kids went to neighborhood schools, mostly kids went to schools if they had a sibling. But if there was sort of a tiebreaker, race was one of them. And Robert said, unacceptable. And I think one of the things we will see as one of Robert's missions as Chief Justice is to eliminate affirmative action, to eliminate racial preferences as a part of American life. I think that is a clear mission that he is on. I think we'll see it this year in the affirmative action case coming out of the University of Texas. I think we'll see it in the, section, the, the Voting Rights Act case, which I write about in the current issue of The New Yorker. Um, and, Are you uh, selling subscriptions? Well, no, I'm not selling subscriptions, but you're welcome to buy. <laughs> um, so, but there are ways you can do that and ways that are not. And I think you make a good point about you know, the, 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 the aggressiveness and almost the nastiness of the parents involved. He could have accomplished the same thing in, in a different way. And I think you see in, in, in more recent years, you know, in the last, you know, that was almost six years ago now, um, he, he is accomplishing the same goals with a lighter touch. Okay, let me um, 
Let me ask you about some of the characters involved, uh, because before we get to the, the stuff that law professors like to talk about, which nobody in their right mind cares about, but, but let's, let's talk about the, uh, the, the more gossipy stuff. One of the interesting uh, portraits in the book, and it's a big departure from the portrait uh, presented in the nine, is of Justice Clarence Thomas. And in the, uh, well, hostile murmur. Yes, immediate audience. Immediately. Oh, Clarence. In fact, one of the last chapters of the book you title The Thomas Court, which was inconceivable to be a title of any part of the nine. And of the liberal stereotype that uh, Thomas was overwhelmed on the court, that he never spoke because he had nothing to say, that he took his marching orders from Scalia, all those kinds of uh, allegations, which you gave some sentiment to in, in the nine. You say candidly, and this is a quote from you, this stereotype is wrong in every particular. Wow. What happened? Um, OK. February 22nd, 2006, that was the last day he asked a question. We're coming up on year seven anniversary. You know, those of us who, who, go to, who go to the court regularly and watch oral arguments, you can't help but sit there and think, will this be the day? <laughs> will it be the day? Because, you know, it could happen any day. But it never is. People uh, turned out for Cal Ripken on that, that That's right. For, you know, for decades. He, I mean, this is you know, no, no justice in the modern history of the court has even gone one year without asking a question, um, and and he is now you know he will soon be entering his eighth eighth year of not asking questions. And, and I think that has taken on such a life of its own as a symbol of his tenure that it's deeply misleading. Look, the the, the theme of the book is really the theme of American politics in the last 20 years, which is the evolution of the Republican Party. That's what my book is about, which is the Republican Party of the 2010s, or whatever you call this decade, that is unrecognizable from the Republican Party of the 1970s. I mean, you look at the moderate Republicans who dominated the Supreme Court for decades, whether it was John Harlan in the 50s, or Potter Stewart in the 60s, or Lewis Powell in the 70s, or Sandra Day O'Connor in the 80s and 90s, these people are gone, and they haven't been replaced by anyone like them. They've been replaced by people who are much more conservative. And, and, and Thomas, as a result, you know, Thomas was ahead of his time in, in that he, he is far more was far more conservative, certainly, than the president who appointed him, and he has benefited from um, the, the arrival on the court of John Roberts and Samuel Alito, who reflect the modern Republican Party. So if you look at the issues Thomas was pushing, sometimes by himself in his early tenure, they have started um, to get a majority of votes. Gun control. You know, he was the first justice to raise the issue of whether the Second Amendment gave individuals a right to to keep and bear arms, an idea that was a fringe idea for decades at the Supreme Court. Thomas did it first. In 2008, the, the whole court adopted it. If you look at the free speech arguments um, that were at the heart of Citizens United, um, which is in many respects sort of the signature decision of the Roberts Court, 
Thomas brought some of those ideas to the court first. If you look at the ideas about the Commerce Clause that came about this close from overturning the health care law, it was, it was um, Thomas who brought those ideas to the court in a 1995 decision called Lopez. I mean, this is a guy. Now, now he benefited, of course, from the fact that um, you know, the president making appointments was George W. Bush, not John Kerry. You know, so, so you know, obviously, every justice has to have um, colleagues who are favorably disposed towards him. But if you look at the ideas that are in ascendance at the, at the Roberts Court, um, the, Thomas was there first. And he continues to be pushing so that on campaign finance, he says even disclosure is a violation of the First Amendment. He's still right. He, he is the His agenda star. has not run out. And, and one of the peculiarities, I think, of Thomas's tenure is that unlike, say, a Justice Kennedy or even a Justice, uh, I mean, certainly a Chief Justice Roberts, he, his, sig his, his legacy is not important majority opinions that he's written. Um, the, the Chief Justice Rehnquist and Chief Justice Roberts recognize that his views are sometimes so extreme he can't get five votes, but he brings ideas to the court um, that over time have, have, have eventually um, gotten five votes. Okay, so you've raised a couple of times the Citizens United point, so let's uh, turn let's to Let's get that. to work, because we let's, disagree about this case. Uh, well, let's, but let's start on, on your characterization of Justice Kennedy around this. And uh, you describe him as, and I quote, not a moderate, but an extremist of varied enthusiasms. You're a pretty good writer, you well, know, I meant to tell you. Yeah. But uh, um, so I think what you're trying to get at here is that he has a, uh, an essentially monochromatic view of the First Amendment. When the First Amendment kicks in, that's it, and he's writing for the editorial pages of the New York Times, and he's off, and, or for his European friends, or whoever, uh, whoever he's trying to impress. But I'm still torn about this characterization as extremist. Uh, it's mechanical, it's inflexible, it's not subtle. I'll give you all that. But extremist means that it's outside of the recognizable patterns of the law, or at least I would take it to mean that. And you look at an opinion like Citizens United. You may disagree with it. You may agree with it. Uh, Floyd Abrams argued the case, somebody who would be very comfortable in the audience here. Um, well, would have been prior to. Uh, <laughs> prior to <laughs> but uh, um, it's not a, an opinion that is so radically different than what had come before. Is that your claim? Oh, no, I think, it, I think it's pretty different. Well, let's just talk about Justice Kennedy for a second. I mean, because I think, you know, those of us who cover the court uh, lapse into a kind of shorthand uh, about the court, which, you know, I, I think is, is, is defensible, but uh, fortunately, you know, I get, to, I get to write a book, you know, to pontificate at greater length about these things. But I mean, what's un certainly unusual about the court at this moment is that there are four justices of very identifiable and consistent views on each side. I mean, you have Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, who are really consistent moderate liberals across the board. You have Roberts, Alito, um, uh, Scalia, and, and Thomas, who are really you know, cons um, conservative across the board. And you have Justice Kennedy. And, and, and so I think sort of by shorthand, we say, oh, well, you know, he's, he's the swing vote, which he is, and we call him a moderate. 
But that's not really accurate, I don't think, because if you look at his views, they are, in fact, not that moderate. Now, perhaps extremist is too extreme a word, but if he does have very black and white views about certain issues like the First Amendment. And, and you know, th there are two, and let's just talk about Citizens United. Yeah. I mean, there are two metaphors, I think, at the heart of Citizens United. Um, one of which gets talked about a lot, and, and one of which um, doesn't, which is, I mean, the, the one that gets talked about a lot is uh, money is speech. And, um, you know, I, I think that is, there's actually something, I don't really have a problem with that. I think money is speech um, to, to a certain extent, because, I mean, think about, you know, if we had a law that said, you can't spend any money on a political campaign. I mean, that clearly would be unconstitutional, right? Um, and, and, but, but, but the other one that is, is anyway, let's talk about money as speech. I mean, what, I mean do, do you have a problem? I mean, you, Wait, you, I'm you, asking a question. I'm no, sorry. No, no, but I mean, let's talk about, no, but I mean, Sam is like, I mean, seriously, we're like leading with like the world's foremost authority on Citizens United. I mean, but you don't have that much of a problem with the case, right? With, with that particular case? No, not particularly. I, I think that... Um, the idea that some corporation gives some money to some lunatic group to put on a video on demand about someone's running for president, that's what modern society is. You have to organize money in order to be able to speak effectively. And, uh, and the court didn't want to go there is one of the interesting things. One of the things that, uh, that comes out in your book for the first time, at least the first time that I've seen it other than in your writing in the New Yorker, which scooped this a little right. bit, was uh, that there was a, an earlier opinion in the case. This is the, quote, secret opinion that you found. And we'll get into how you find these things, uh, how, what, how you go through the trash or whatever it is uh, to find these things. But um, there's an early opinion by Justice Roberts in which he tries to go one ratchet down. He tries to find a statutory reason that Citizens United should be able to put out this video. Citizens United is some right-wing crank group that, uh, that Jeff writes about that tried to raise money um, by appealing to very wealthy people who would back their ventures and in the meantime would get to say some nasty things about liberal politicians. But um, he pulled that back. So what, what's, well, what's I mean, the story I think on that's that? a real illustration of where Justice Kennedy is. And, you know, his, I mean, the... the right, you the, described this, Kennedy as attacking right, Roberts. That, that Roberts wanted to deal with Citizens United as, you know, the, the, the facts of the case are, as Sam said, very bizarre. There's this, you know, this fringe group and it's a nonprofit. The case could have been decided in a way that none of us here would remember or think about it. But Kennedy said, look, no, we have to make a statement about um, money is speech, corporations are people, and that's, I mean, it, that, and, and it really, you know, the, the, the famous line from Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' confirmation hearings where he said, oh, I just want to be an umpire, I don't want to just call balls and strikes, don't want to change the law dramatically. This was such a dramatic change of the law, initiated by Kennedy behind the scenes, but also joined by Roberts, that I think, you know, it really was the most transparent um, attempt to show, I mean, the most transparent illustration of how radical a conservative court this is. Right, but, but the way they got into it, Jeff, uh, doesn't seem to quite add up, because 
The case was presented to them. Uh, Ted Olson argued it. He argued it very narrowly as a statutory case, meaning that he didn't want to reach any big constitutional issues. He said, just let my clients win, and we'll all go home. And then the U.S., uh, the representative of the U.S., the Deputy Solicitor General, uh, Malcolm Stewart, gets up and during questioning pursues an answer to its ultimate extreme where he says, if somebody puts out books and they get money from corporations, the government has the right to destroy the books, which is the image of books being thrown on the bonfire that we've all been raised as the very heart of what's wrong with governmental power in this area. So in some sense, the logic of the case got away from them, didn't it? it, it that, I, I, I think so. And, and you know, th th this is where the sort of black and white becomes so important that, you know, the, the two metaphors I was talking about, the one is corporations or people. That's right. the one everybody talks about. But I think the money is speech is much more, is much more important and, and more problematic because, and this is where, you know, the, the black and white nature of Kennedy's approach to these things is, is so wrong. You know, yes, there is an element in which money is speech, but it is also true since the turn of the last century in Theodore Roosevelt that the government has regulated corporate money in politics. I mean, the first campaign finance law was in 1906, said corporations cannot give money directly to political campaigns. That's a restriction on the free speech rights of corporations, and it's fine. It's still and, and fine. It's, well, it's, well, for it's now. still, for now, it's yes. fine. But I mean, but, but I think, you know, by, by making a black and white judgment that a corporation can give unlimited amounts of money as long as it's through this ridiculous fiction called a super PAC is, is just an absurd extension of that, of that metaphor, that money is speech. So tell, tell us something. How did you find out that there was a secret opinion? How come you know this and nobody else knows? You well, know, usually when people know something and nobody else knows, we lock them up. Right. But, uh, but okay. in your case, apparently people want to hear you speak. So how do you do this? Well, the, 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 the answer is um, two things. One is David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, um, said something to me very early in my career of writing about the Supreme Court um, that um, was a very good piece of advice. He said, you know, you'd be surprised how much is hiding in plain sight. And all of which led me to West Lafayette, Indiana. Now, you might wonder, why, why West Lafayette, Indiana? Well, Brian Lamb, this, not Lamb, is that his name? This founder of C-SPAN, went to Purdue. And he sent the archives of C-SPAN to West Lafayette, where Purdue is. And you know, the justices are on C-SPAN a lot, more than you think. Yeah, they, they conferences, they do questions and answers, and it being C-SPAN, not a lot of people watch. But the stuff is there, and you'd be surprised the, the candor that, that sometimes gets. A lot of these justices, one of the things people don't realize is they like to talk. And you see that when they do question Q&As. I mean, these people love to talk. And, and fortunately, I have now been covering the court long enough that I, um, you know, they know who I am, and some of them, by no means all of them, but a majority of the living justices speak to me. So I learn stuff from them. Um, the other thing is law clerks. And, and this is a big, law clerks are a big source. Now, as many of you know, uh, each Supreme Court justice has four law clerks who tend to be young, uh, recent law school graduates who work um, as confidential assistants 
and they think they're very, very important, and they, they draft a lot of things. And I, I tend to think they are less important than they think they are, but they also have a lot of access to very good information. And for many of them, the um, experience is at 28 or whatever, the high point of their careers. And some of them are willing to talk about it, even though they're not technically supposed to. But so they're a big, I, I have a very big spreadsheet in my office of every law clerk who served in the last 10 or so years, and I called every single one. Many of them told me to go to hell. Fortunately, many of them did not. You have private information on many of them so that they uh, are it's, it's, you know, encouraged. I, it's not, I don't, it's not necessary. So let me ask you about, uh, with regard to Citizens United, another of the portraits that you draw, and that is of uh, Justice Kagan. Uh, she is uh, someone who grew up five blocks from here, um, is an, a law school friend of yours, a close law school friend, same study group? Yeah, first year, there were four of us. Uh, tell Just them who goes the four. to show. Tell them who the four are. It's pretty well, impressive. Uh, well, no, well t Tony Herman and Gail Horowitz, who I don't think anybody Wasn't knows. was Miguel Estrada? Well, Miguel Estrada, who was uh, nominated to the DC Circuit, was sort of an occasional member of the study group. For a long time, we were the only study group in history with two unsuccessful nominees to the DC Circuit on them, because uh, Elena was nominated unsuccessfully to the DC Circuit by, by Clinton. Um, I always say, you know, you just, you never know someone in your study group will grow up to cover the Michael Jackson case. It's a very moving uh, thing. Um, so, so let me ask you something about her. Because so yes, the I've first, known Elena uh, a long time. The, the, her first argument in the Supreme Court, in fact, her first argument as a lawyer, is the Citizens United case. And she walks into a buzzsaw because the prior uh, person who had argued for the government had invited this burning of books uh, image, uh, or at least allowed it to fester. And she has to get out from under that and is not altogether successful, but shows herself to have tremendous drive, poise. What would you expect from somebody who'd been dean of Harvard Law School for a long time? But you also draw a picture of her as someone who's, uh, shall we say, preternaturally um, cautious. She doesn't take positions in her public statements. She doesn't write very much for a legal academic. She comes to the confirmation hearings with actually a very thin record of public positions for somebody who has been in such high profile uh, uh, roles for so long. Is and then you say something interesting. You say um, that that's okay to question them this way because the court, in your words, is not an honor society, but the final arbiter on scores of the most controversial issues in the United States, including gun control. And then you conclude by saying that opposing her confirmation was the rational thing for the NRA to do. So you're, you're acquiescing in some fashion into the idea that you really have to scrutinize these people because they have tremendous power. Is Elena Kagan the model for how somebody gets on the court now? Do you have to be silent about everything that is potentially controversial? And what does that say about the prospects for transformative justices? Well, let, let's Let's talk about two things. Let's talk about this, the, the confirmation process as it should be and the confirmation process as it is. I mean, my own view is that the confirmation process should be open and unfettered access to what these people think about these issues. I mean, you know, every member of the Senate Judiciary Committee 
uh, the 18 members, when they run for office, they, they announce, or do they think Roe v. Wade was correctly decided? And some say yes, and some say no. And then they get a Supreme Court nominee in front of them who actually has some authority over whether Roe v. Wade will be overturned or not, and the nominee says, well, I can't answer that because it may come up. Why? I mean, like, it doesn't, the senators have no power over Roe v. Wade. I mean, it's, it's an absurd process. However, it is the but process. But they ask about Griswold, which is the, the same thing. They, they, they have ways the code. There are various the code. codes. But, you know, it's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, the, 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 but but the, this process has been this way for 20-plus years by now, since Robert Bork in 1987. And what you have on the Supreme Court now are two brilliant examples of working the system in very similar ways. John Roberts and Elena Kagan. Their careers are very similar. The key experience for both of them in terms of their future judicial career was their service in the White House. John Roberts was a very highly regarded uh, member of the White House staff under President Reagan. Elena Kagan was a very highly regarded member of the White House staff under Bill Clinton. They got to, people got to know them there, got to know their real views, but both of them subsequently conducted themselves in ways that they preserved their public um, inscrutability while the right people knew what they really thought. That is a very clever way to run for Supreme Court justice. It is an absurd way to conduct a country, but that's, that's, that's what we've gotten. And, and just, you know, a, a wonderful Supreme Court book written a few years ago um, was called um, um, uh, the, the, the snake. The no, 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 oh, no. Um, Noah, Noah Feldman, uh, Harvard Law, uh, Scorpions. Scorpions. Scorpions, which is a profile of the four most prominent uh, FDR appointments to the Supreme Court uh, Hugo Black, William O. Douglas, Felix Frankfurter, and Robert Jackson. Four larger than life characters. People who had taken, I mean, you know, Hugo Black was a senator. Um, you know, Felix Frankfurter was a liberal law professor. William O. Douglas was head of the SEC. Robert Jackson was attorney general. These people had led big lives. All inconceivable as appointments today. And I think that's tragic, but that's, that's the way it goes. Okay, let's turn uh, to the last couple of topics. I want to do something on, on uh, first on the Affordable Care Act case. And uh, the, the nine, the shaping uh, event of the nine was uh, Bush v. Gore. And the shaping events of the book as, it, as one starts to read it seems to have been from Citizens United to the Affordable Care Act. And this was the Roberts counter-revolution against the Obama revolution. And the book sort of reads that way, and there was a sense that that's how you expected it to come out. Uh, indeed, you went on CNN that night. I hate to bring up um, uh, painful memories, except in public. Um, <laughs> but uh, you went on CNN that night to proclaim how the case was going to come out. You pilloried uh, the presentation by the uh, Solicitor General, Don Verrilli. Um, what happened? How'd you go so wrong? See, this is the problem. <laughs> when you talk on CNN, they keep the tapes afterwards. In Indiana. No, it, it, no it's, it's, they, they don't even have to go all the way to Indiana. No. I, I wouldn't say I was wrong. I would say I was catastrophically and utterly wrong oh, okay. uh, uh, in my prediction. Um, I, 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 it's, 
it, it, as my dad used to say, to make a long story unbearable, uh, <laughs> if you look at the way William Rehnquist ran the Supreme Court, he basically created a, um, a, a culture where good fences made good neighbors, where they didn't talk to the, each other very much. So that led to oral argument being really the only opportunity for the justices to talk to each other. And, it, and if you look in general, um, they don't do a lot of playing devil's advocate during oral argument. They, they use their questions. I mean, Sam has argued in the Supreme Court, unlike me. I mean, they, they use their questions to make their case to their colleagues. They're not so much interested in what the lawyers have to say. They are making arguments through their questions. So I. Um, operated on the assumption is that that's what they were doing in the Affordable Care Act case. Because in the oral argument, um, the four conservative justices who speak, putting Thomas to the side, since his views were certainly very, very well known on this issue, it certainly looked like there were five votes to overturn the law uh, on, on the main issue in the case, which was the Commerce Clause. Does the Commerce Clause authorize Congress to pass the individual mandate, the requirement that people buy health insurance. So I went on TV and said this was a train wreck, this was a disaster. I said that Don Verrilli did a bad job, which he did. Um, but I mean, I'm, you know, Don Verrilli's a great guy, he's argued well, but come on, that was not a great argument. I was utterly wrong in my understanding of what John Roberts was doing, and, and so, so I'm not, as I said, to make a long story unbearable, um, I think Roberts saw, saw the case in very political terms. I, I think he saw that this was, in many respects, the third case in a trilogy. Bush v. Gore, Citizens United, the Affordable Care Act case, where you had a third opportunity for the court to split five to four, conservative versus liberals, deeply political cases, to overturn the central achievement of a Democratic president, and I think Roberts understood that it would damage the court. He, he approached this case as the chief justice, not as an associate justice, is that he did not want to see the court become a major issue in the 2012 campaign. This decision was right at the beginning of the core of the campaign. Um, he, and, and, and so he found this, frankly, obscure argument about the taxing power which had only glancingly been raised at the oral argument by Sonia Sotomayor, I think rather significantly. And, um, and, and so he, he decided to pull back. But it surprised the hell out of me. It surprised the hell out of his colleagues. But there you go. Well, let me, uh, let me push a little more and suggest that you're even more wrong. OK. Uh, because just to be, it's all, it's we're, we're friends. Possible, so yeah. Yes, no, but it, it strikes me that, that what you did on, uh, on TV that night, which is what everybody was trying to do, is to gather from the tenor of the questions the ideological position of each of the justices. And in, to go back to that quote that, you, that I read at the beginning about the nature of what it means to become the Roberts court, is Roberts both trying to push the ideological agenda, but also becoming the chief justice, becoming the institutional figure for the court. And there's a number of cases in which the court had the opportunity, it certainly had the votes, to push further uh, ideologically. The first of the Voting Rights Act cases uh, where eight to one they pulled back and they said something transparently silly. It's a very technical part of the Voting Rights Act, but they said, 
Congress meant to write this into the statute, which was just a silly throwaway argument, buying some time that maybe this issue would go away somehow. So there's a couple of instances where this happens, isn't, aren't there? there? Where you do see this institutional side of Roberts. Yes, and, and, and look, I mean, I, I, I was just wrong. I mean, I, I think. No, no, it, we're trying to push this point. No, no, no I, I understand that, 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 that um, you know, the, I mean, I do think Roberts has changed somewhat. I mean, I think, I, I, that's I, I, I have that's my. That's the real question. I have my, you know, I, I, the, the, we can get into the whole Voting Rights Act case. I'm not terribly persuaded that that, that was all that significant. They're essentially going to have the same case now, and they're going to do the same thing they would have done except five years later. Um, but, um, I mean, let's, let's look ahead for a moment. I mean, March 26th and 27th, the two... Um, yes, we'll come to those. Okay, I want to come all right, to right, right. But, but I mean, I, 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 the one thing for sure is I, I'm not going on CNN and saying, well, the result is... For, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. You know, I will be a lot more cautious in my predictions in the future. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's finish with the gay rights case because okay. we want to save a little time for the... Uh, the question answers. Um, so I could ask you to do what you did with the healthcare. How are they going to rule? Okay. I mean, I, look, you know, in for a dime, in for a dollar. Um, I, I, I mean, it's a completely fascinating pair of cases. There are two cases, and I think it's very important to recognize that there are two cases, and they're quite different. Um, the, the first case is, is the Defense of Marriage Act constitutional? And that is, um, the, the Defense of Marriage Act case says, that the federal government will not honor same-sex marriages, even in states where it's legal. And the facts are very compelling. They, 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 they come from here in New York. There's a couple, you know, two women who are married. They happen to have gotten married in Canada, but they're as married as any straight couple in New York. And they... Um, the rest of the country would, would not disagree with that characterization that New York marriages are different, right? Well, is that what you're I, but, but, but no, but I mean, legally, under New York law, they are as married as any straight right. couple. And, and um, I, as I think most people know, under IRS rules, if one spouse dies, the money passes tax-free to the surviving spouse. But because the IRS is part of the federal government, they don't honor the marriage, so the surviving woman has to pay like $300,000 right. in taxes. Very but, but politically, what's so significant about DOMA is that it only applies in states that already have same-sex marriage. So politically, it's not that difficult for the court to say it's unconstitutional because it doesn't affect that many people. And it's also it's, just so obviously unfair. Yeah, it's also ugly. It's just an, an aggressive right. dis pro proclamation of discrimination by the federal government. And if you look at Anthony Kennedy, again, in the spirit of Kennedy seeing things in black and white terms, obviously a conservative in most cases, he is the author of the two most significant gay rights cases, victories in the Supreme Court, Lawrence v. Texas and the Romer case. Um, so he is really a stalwart for gay rights. He's also a believer in states' rights and federalism. So this case seems very much set up for right. a five to four, at least, uh, victory striking down same-sex, striking down uh, D Defensive Marriage Act case. The other case is the Proposition 8 case out of California, which is a different case, which is the case is that may California ban same-sex marriage? And it really raises the more fundamental question of does, do gay people have the right under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to get married anywhere? 
Uh, it's it's a ruling that potentially applies in all 50 states. But so so let let's let's finish with that because this is really the heart of the of the problem for people who look at the court. What do you want the court to do with something like this? Uh, we both have kids around the same age. Uh, our families know each other, and for the generation of our kids. This is almost a non-issue. This is something that if you read all the survey literature, it's just going to die because there just doesn't seem to be the generational investment in the idea that if you want to get married, go ahead. Nobody else is getting married. Why would you want to? But if you want to, go ahead. You know. And uh, um, But now, all of a sudden, that's happening moving politically. There was a blip in reverse in California. That's a little bit odd. Do you want the court, should we want the court, to be jumping out in front and to say, the Constitution says that even though it's still not the law in almost every state in the country, all but six, or uh, at no, this point, nine, nine yeah. yeah, nine at this point. Uh, that's right, because Maine just voted. Um, in all but nine, we want the Constitution to go way out ahead of where the country is, or seems to be at this moment. Is that what the court should be doing? Well, well among other things, you know, same-sex marriage has given rise to some of the best New Yorker cartoons of the last decade. <laughs> uh, my favorite being uh, this sort of this grumpy old couple sitting in bed, and the and the guy is reading the newspaper, and he says, "Gay marriage. Haven't those people suffered enough?" <laughs> uh, which, which I hasten to add, is not my view of marriage, but it's just some people find that funny. I don't. Um, the <laughs> Uh, um, what was the question again? No, uh, <laughs> the question is: Should the court, you know, get out preempt the process? Yeah, and, and this is really the the question that even some liberals, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, have asked about Roe v. Wade in 1973. They've made the point that you know, in 1973, lots of states um, were already legalizing abortion, but by the Supreme Court sort of declaring overnight on January 25th, 1973, soon to be the 40th anniversary, um, all 50 states have to legalize abortion. They galvanized opposition. They preempted the democratic process. And um, that was something they shouldn't have done. Now, the, the question is, and this is a real hard question, you know, it's like Ted Olson, who is the generally conservative lawyer who is representing the um, challenging to Proposition 8, you know, has a very passionate answer to this question. And he says, is this what we want the Supreme Court to do? And he says, absolutely, because this is why we have a Supreme Court. Because the Supreme Court exists when the democratic process has failed. And the democratic process denies millions of gay people a right to which the 14th Amendment to the Constitution um, entitles them, you're damn right they should do it, and they should do it tomorrow, if not sooner. You know, there's a wonderful, so this, sure, this yeah. draws on a wonderful legacy that in, the, uh, in our trade we call the Caroline Products footnote, which says, Ooh, why man, do you, you have... You are in for such an education here tonight, the Caroline yeah, it, Products footnote. It, it'll be brief, It's I footnote promise. four, actually. Yes, uh, and so the idea is that we, the court is what we call counter-majoritarian. It has to protect the little people, what they call the discreet and insular minorities. But then there's a clause that follows that, which is generally not given much attention, or the attention that's due, which is who can't rely on the ordinary operation of the political process. This is one of these hard moments where it's not difficult to imagine that the ordinary working of politics, our kids becoming our age, 
will take care of this issue if the court doesn't galvanize opposition around. That's, it's, it's one it's, of the it's real very, conundrums. Uh, it, is a, it is a real conundrum because, um, I mean, there are, and, and this also, I mean, also, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about gay rights as a political cause, particularly compared to, say, women's rights or civil rights for African Americans, is the lightning fast process by which gay rights have, have, have succeeded, by and large. No, I don't mean to be Panglossian about this, that you know, everything's perfect for gay people, that they don't suffer any discrimination, but, but if you look at the survey research, if you look at the, um, you know, even the changes in the laws, it, it's, been, it's been very fast. When we were in law school. I mean, I'm a few years before you, but when we were in law school, this wasn't even part of the d discourse at the time. This same is, sex marriage. I, I remember, you know, I, I want before. This was I, those hypotheticals that law professors ooh, made up to show how absurd I, they were. My, my first job after my clerkship was um, I was in the Iran Contra prosecution. The, I, I was part of the team that prosecuted Oliver North. It's interesting, you know, I speak at law schools and whatnot. I have to explain that Oliver North had a job before he was on Fox. Uh, and and um, the. the um, so, and, and one of my colleagues um, in that office was a guy named Evan Wolfson, who was a, uh, a former Brooklyn prosecutor who left the, the Walsh office to go work for a group that's now called Freedom to Marry. Evan is one of the pioneering lawyers on same-sex marriage. And Lawrence Walsh was the, um, was the Iran-Contra Iran prosecutor, you know, a real lion of the bar, a partner at Davis Polk. And, and uh, he was you know, head of the American Bar Association. And I always remember Evan's going away party at the office. And, and, and Walsh was saying, trying to say nice things about Evan. But he knew where Evan was going to work you know, for, for gay marriage. And I remember Walsh saying, I can't believe somebody said everything. And Evan is leaving to do work that's very important to him. You know, it's like, I don't know what the heck he's doing. I never heard of this. And, 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 and you know, now, um, you know, Evan, who I have written about, and so, you know, Evan worries that his task has gone from impossible to inevitable without stopping at the current, like, getting the problem done in the meantime. So I don't really know what the answer is, whether the, the Supreme Court should just do what it, you know, say same-sex marriage, that the country's moving so fast it won't be that big a deal, or should they... Uh, wait for the political process. Or, so find a, or find a way to parse it, and you, you set that up very well by saying the DOMA case actually is easier to fit oh, into a whole lot of jurisprudence. Maybe that's the one that they write in. Maybe the other one they use some of these lawyer techniques, standing like kick and the all can down the road. To just yeah. say maybe this is the one that should, we should wait on. Okay, so uh, I am supposed to tell you that if you don't come to the sides of the microphones, there will be police dogs uh, set upon you or something of that sort. But please come to the microphones because we're trying to make it, make it there are people upstairs, we want to make sure everybody can hear. Um, gun enthusiasts always talk about their Second Amendment rights. If in the future there's a liberal majority on the Supreme Court, could those Second Amendment rights go away because a lot of people interpret, say the Second Amendment does not give people the right to bear arms. It just talks about arming a militia. Well, the, the, the Second Amendment you know, has two famous clauses, and, and I, I won't do it justice if I recite it from memory, but it's basically you know, a well-regulated militia being necessary for a free people, blah, blah, blah. Um, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And for decades, 
the Supreme Court had said, this amendment has nothing to do with an individual right to bear arms. But in 2008, Justice Scalia wrote a famous opinion in, the Heller case, in a case called Heller that said, yes, there is an individual right to own a handgun for personal protection in the home. Now, how far that right extends beyond that point, the court has not really yet determined. Um, could the court overrule Heller? I suppose it could. I, I think it, it, the way these things tend to work is they wouldn't overrule it by name, but they would confine it to such a point that there is not a, um, um, there is not a, a you know, that th there's a lot of room for Congress to legislate. But let me just make a point about the Second Amendment and, and you know, sort of legal politics generally. You know, I think a lot of liberals make the mistake of saying that, you know, all the conservatives have done is just, you know, the Koch brothers, they bought up everything and they, you know, paid all this money and they, they bought victories and all this. You know, conservatives took seriously the, uh, the power of ideas and Justice Thomas, very much among them, you know, they, they wrote law review articles, they gave speeches, they, they, they held symposia. I mean, they really developed a, a ideological framework around the Second Amendment that eventually held sway at the court. And I, and I think, you know, the, the, the irony is they, they always claim the Constitution is, is not a living document. They, they say it's just an original intent, you know, the, the framers decided what the Constitution meant. But they have shown just how much the Constitution lived. And so, yes, it is possible if liberals could overturn it, but you know, I wouldn't hold so my breath. So the Heller decision is not settled law then? Well, it's certainly very settled law now, but, but you know, there could concerned. be more appointments somewhere down the line. Yes, sir. Just a question about the Citizens United um, decision. And I think a lot of people got upset by the decision because corporations tend to give to conservative causes. Because unions take, member uh, money from their members dues and uses it for political purposes and a newspaper which is a corporation writes editorials which is sort of like a purchased advertisement so what i don't know the case law i mean not a lawyer why was it such an upsetting decision in terms of the other corporations being able to use well it? Th th there has been a law on the books you know, since Theodore Roosevelt, that corporations are not allowed to give money directly to uh, political candidates on the grounds that they, they would distort the process because they tend to aggregate so much capital, they, they, have, so, they have so much money. Um, the, the, what, what Citizens United did that was different is they, I mean, as, as it's been interpreted, it wasn't necessarily Citizens United itself, said that they could give money to these super PACs, which are essentially shells that are like the campaigns. But I think, as Sam was saying earlier, there are people, including reasonable people like Sam, who do not think it's all that outrageous that the court said that, because corporations, sometimes they're editorial, sometimes they participate in the political process. That's the, that's the idea behind Citizens United. One small caveat with regard to the unions. Since the 1940s, they also have been Banned just like corporations. Unlike the the corporations, they have to go through this whole process of making sure that each member has the right to withdraw some portion of the money uh, of the money paid in dues if the member doesn't want to fund the political activity. 
but um, uh, it is uh, it is a complicated. This is a the more one of the interesting things about teaching this area to young law students is that they come in with clear ideas that it's very it's easy to regulate in this area. Once you start getting into the particulars, well, what about the New York Times? Where do they get their money? Where do they get their influence? Are they not a corporation? What gives them the ability to speak? And is it the fact that they're a press institution? Well, what about bloggers? What about somebody who puts out a video? Uh, you get into these lines that are very difficult. But Jeff is entirely right that, uh, for the most part, the line has been held. Unions, corporations are different. They can't give money directly to the candidates. But when they want to speak, you know, then all of a sudden we're in a domain where Maybe if money is speech, the, the line gets more difficult. And, and you know, it's funny, when, when people talk about Citizens United, they are mostly outraged about this corporate corporations or people. If you look at how Citizens United has actually operated in the real world, it hasn't been corporations that have been spending the millions of dollars. It's been individuals like Sheldon Adelson who, who have been putting up um, many, many millions of dollars. And that's just, you know. That's unaffected by yeah. Citizens United. Right. Yes, sir. My question deals with what you said earlier about the Roberts Revolution. If one of the four conservatives, Scalia, uh, Alito, should leave the court and then Obama replaces him, what happens to that revolution? And, and do you see the five to four liberal to conservative vote occasionally being six to three with Roberts attempting, attempting to present himself as something other than a political agenda? Uh well, you know, I mean, the ju you know, one of the things all nine justices w will agree on if, if they were at an occasion like this, as, as they often are, is that, you know, are they doing law or are they doing politics? And they'd all say, oh, no, we're doing law. They're all wrong. Uh, I mean, th this is an intensely political thing uh, that they do. Um, look, the, the issue of vacancies is obviously enormously important. There are four justices in their 70s. You know, Ruth Ginsburg is 79. Uh, Justice Scalia and Kennedy are 76. Stephen Breyer is 74. If Justice uh, Ginsburg leaves, um, as I think she probably will in the next four years, I don't see the balance of the court changing uh, dramatically. Um, I don't think Justice Kennedy or Justice Scalia will leave voluntarily, but you never know. You know, one of the weird things about you know interacting with Supreme Court justices is you know, normal social pleasantries take on a somewhat different air. It's like when you say, how are you? You want to know, like, like I, I want to see the blood work. I want to, it's like, you know. Um, so, you know, as far as I know, Justice Kennedy and Justice Scalia aren't going anywhere. But um, it's, you know, you, you just never know once you start to get, to get get to a certain age. Yes, I mean, if Obama gets to replace one of those four conservatives, dramatically, dramatically different court. I mean, it's just, that's just the nature of the way it works. Sir. Yeah, uh, we pride ourselves on the balance between the court, the Congress, and the president. So what do you think would happen if the president or the speaker of the house or some equivalent of the Congress didn't say anything for six years. Well, I mean, in fairness, uh, Justice Thomas writes opinions. Uh, it's actually very striking. 
Uh, I've occasionally been in the court, you know, the, the way they, they announce the results and opinions. And um, he, you know, you hear him talk because he reads the, and it's like, wow, it's just very unusual to hear him talk in the courtroom. Um, he has you know, the best voice on the he has, a, he has a fantastic voice. Um, and, and also, you know, it's not, and, and you know, there's this edge of condescension. Oh, he's too dumb. It's, like, it's no, it's not. I mean, I've seen him at occasions like this. He speaks at law schools frequently. He's very knowledgeable, very conversant with these issues. You know, I, the paradox of Justice Thomas, I mean, it's so fascinating. I mean, if, if you look at, you know, in terms of popularity of justices among their colleagues, among the people who work at the court, um, he is very much near the top, very well liked by the liberals and conservatives alike. Um, but there is this burning anger that remains about the Anita Hill hearings. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. It's about his continuing resentment of the news media, of, of, of Democrats for, for subjecting him to that, even though it's now 22 years ago. Um, th that's what this is about. Speaker of the House had that burning anger. What would be happening in the nation? Well, they'd be voted. I mean, you know, they 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 are answerable to their the voters, and they could be voted out. And that's, I mean, frankly, I am very glad we have a system where just justices cannot be voted out. And and I don't think there is any evidence he's not doing his job. I mean, one of the interesting things also is, you know, when I started going to the Supreme Court in the in the late '80s. The oral arguments were very sedate affairs. You know, Justice, Bren Justice Brennan, Justice, Justice Marshall, Justice Blackman asked very few questions. It, it, it was only in more recent years, I mean, now no one has gone to the extreme that Thomas has, but, but I mean, it, the idea of if you don't ask questions, you're not doing your job as a justice, I just don't think that's a fair characterization. We have time for one last question, sir. Uh, yes, admittedly, the, the Roberts Court is not a completed court yet, but the, its history is not over. But if you were, let's say, a historian uh, 50 years from now, how would you rate the, uh, the Roberts Court as compared to previous courts? Okay, but as long as you answer one question for me, I'll, I will answer that. Now, starting in 2016, is the president Paul Ryan, then Ted Cruz, then uh, Marco Rubio, or is the president <laughs> Hillary Clinton, uh, Andrew Cuomo and Malia Obama, uh, you know, and then you know, then I will tell you what the no, legacy of, of the Roberts of, Court is. As of, Be, as of uh, let's say pre, uh, present evidence. Uh, uh, well, I, you know, evidence. I don't know what the present evidence is about who's the president's going to be for the next thirty years. I, 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 I mean, so, so I mean, it, it is an intensely political situation at the court. Jeff, and and the one left, everybody wants, who's gonna win in 2016? They want you on record right now. Well, <laughs> as long as Hillary keeps that helmet, I think she'll be in fine shape. But. Thank you both so much for being with us tonight. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I just want to remind you that Jeff Tubin will be signing his book in the Smith Gallery. Our museum store is in that direction. And we just want to ask you, I always like asking, how many members are with us tonight? Wow. That's excellent. I don't know if there are any people not members here tonight, but if you are not a member, join the crowd. And join Jeff, and you will be a member too soon, shortly, I guarantee uh, it. I will, okay. yes. So thank you all for coming. Thank you very much.